What's up, Lions of Liberty fans? You can now support this show on Patreon and get exclusive access to bonus audio and video content, including Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, bonus segments with guests, and so much more. Head on over to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. And I don't care if you're a a felon or a friend or a freedom lover, or maybe you're all three, the trifecta. Which, if you're all three, then you are definitely in the right place, even if you fit none of those categories. Maybe you're just my enemy, and you're still listening. Great. Welcome. Hopefully you pick something up today and learn about some injustice in the criminal justice system. Felony Friday is one of three other shows we have here on Lions of Liberty. I could talk about the other uh, three shows, but I'm only going to talk about one of them, because that's really all that matters right now. Yesterday's show... So if you're listening to this on Friday, the 26th of October, on the 25th of October, I did a show with Larry Sharp, our Candidates of Liberty show. If you missed that, go back and check it out. You can go to the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash col14, or you can just go to uh, your podcast feed and look back one episode. Great episode with Larry Sharp. We talked about his campaign, lots of different things, the issue with debates, him trying to get in debates, and we talked about his appearance on Joe Rogan. So if you missed that one, take a step back in your feed after listening to this episode, of course, and check out the last Candidates of Liberty episode with Larry Sharp. Okay, this episode of Felony Friday is episode 147. That means the show notes page for this for this show can be found at lionsofliberty.com slash FF147. Got another great guest today, another great felon who has overcome a lot of adversity. Let's hear his story. My guest today on Felony Friday is Michael Monsivais. Michael grew up in an environment where he was surrounded by drugs. He grew up in a tough neighborhood and as he was growing up, he, he spent time in and out of jail, even as a juvenile. And in an effort to, to turn his life around, he met a mentor who introduced him to welding. And within a year, he was having success. He joined a union. He was on various building projects. He was doing very well. And then in 2007, the economy crashed. And this sent Michael back into his old ways, back into the drug trade. Uh, this got him arrested again and landed him with a 130-month sentence. So while in prison, uh, Michael did suffer a couple different uh, abusive and and violent uh, things that happened with prison guards that we're going to get into as well. But also while in prison, Michael did some pretty incredible things um, with starting, helping to start a welding program for inmates to help to reduce recidivism. He's currently in a halfway house, and I think he gets out in uh, in a few weeks here. So, Michael, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, thank you, John, for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show, man. You know, I know that uh, you got a lot going on. Um, you're you're working to uh, 
get out of that halfway house and get uh get back into society and uh and you know I'm sure you're going to contribute and, and add value and continue doing what you've been doing while you've been in uh, in prison. So uh, with with my guests what I like to do is so everyone gets the you know not everyone listening has read about you and has this you know background knowledge that I have. So just give people uh, an idea of you know what your life was like growing up um you know, I know I talked about in the intro there how you were surrounded by drugs and it was a really tough, really tough neighborhood. Just give people a taste for what uh, your environment was like during your youth. Well, uh, I grew up in a in a, in a small town uh, uh, in Southern California. Um, it was uh, rampant with drugs and the gangs. I grew up uh, around this violence and, and stuff. I, I grew up in a broken home. You know, the parents were, were you know, abusing drugs and it was, you know, domestic violence and stuff like that in the house. So because of this, you know, um, unhealthy environment as a youngster, I took to the streets because I wanted to get away from it. So I started hanging out with some of these guys in the neighborhood and I became attracted to the lifestyle. You know, my role models were gangsters and thugs and drug dealers. So, you know, I kind of wanted to be like them. And so hanging out with them. You know, I just got entangled in that web of drugs and, and, and violence and, you know, the street life. And that became my, my addiction. So uh, because of those choices that I, I made, you know, I spent a lot of time incarcerated, you know, going through juvenile hall, California Youth Authority, uh, county jail, state prison. And on this last one, I went through the federal system. Um, you know, I was young. I was immature. I didn't, you know, develop, you know, the way a normal kid should develop. So it took me a lot longer to mature and realize what it really is that I wanted in life. And so because of my mistakes, I, you know, I, like I said, I spent a lot of time in jail. But as I became older and, and, and maturity started catching up me, I realized that this was, wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in jail. I didn't want to uh, end up dead like a lot of my other friends are, you know, strung out on drugs like a lot of the other ones. So I started thinking about things that I wanted to do. And uh, as you mentioned to the audience um, a second ago, um, a friend of mine introduced me to welding and, and, and it was pretty interesting to me. So I got into it and I was doing pretty good. And things were going good for a while. And then, uh, you know, that recession hit and things slowed down and I got laid off. And the only thing other than welding I knew how to do was sell drugs. So as a means to get by during a short period of time that the union said we were going to be down, um, I just was selling a couple little grams here and there to some friends. And unbeknownst to me, uh, one of them was working for the FBI. And... Um, you know what's uh, just, just to jump in for a minute, because um, doing some doing some research, looking into this interview, if you read, ba- it's crazy how how they word stuff in these uh, these news articles and how the police say things that uh, they referred to it as this like elaborate. Um, I, I think they referred to it as you know gang gang activity, and uh, it was a. They said it was a violent gang that you were involved with. Is, is that true at all in any way? Well, there, you know, being from the yeah, the gang was uh, is known as a violent street gang. You know, especially back in the day. You know, this is a long time ago. This is when we were kids. You know, that was 
usually like the last of the violence. Things would calm down and, and stuff like that. Now, what, what the FBI loves to do is they just tag the word conspiracy onto any case that they're investigating, and automatically it changes the whole game for them. You know, once they add conspiracy, basically what happened in my case is just some of us friends that grew up together that were from the gang. Most of these guys are like old now and raising their families, but some of them still like to party and get high and stuff like that. Or some of them were also struggling. So um, it was a few grams. It wasn't some elaborate scheme. It wasn't some, you know, big, you know, uh, organized crime situation here. It was just, uh, you know, a couple of small time guys doing a couple of things to get by or just some of the guys just using and they hit it with conspiracy and, and it changed the whole the whole game. And it's just because we all knew each other that they were able to say that we conspired to uh, distribute and um, and uh, possess, um, you know, illegal substances. And in my case, it was 38 grams of methamphetamine. And what was the sentence you got from that? I received a 130 uh, month sentence. They were trying to give me a lot more than that because uh, the reason I got 130, I was looking at 151 to 188 months. Um, the reason I got 130 was because the court, after doing the um, with the probation, the uh, pre-sentence investigation, they realized that I came from a broken home and nothing about. Uh, my upbringing was normal or healthy. So the court found mitigating factors based on those circumstances to vary on the sentencing guidelines in my case, which resulted in 130 month sentence, which is still 10 years, 10 months for 38 grams of methamphetamine. Yeah. And you, you ended Something up serving I, the, the entire thing. It seems like, right? Almost. Yeah. I served eight, eight years out of that 10 years and 10 months. So you, you mentioned before, I guess if we can just backtrack a little bit um, before you had this second arrest. So you got involved in welding. Um, you know, you, you found it interesting. You, you were making money. What changed your outlook that made you change from looking to make money maybe an easier way, or maybe you can make more money selling drugs, to, uh, to try to make money welding? Well, I just, I just I started, you know, as I was starting to get a little older, um, I started to see a lot of my friends getting killed out in the streets. I seen a lot of them uh, dying of overdoses and stuff like that. And I seen quite a few of my friends uh, get life sentences, you know, in the state. I've seen guys receive life sentences for something as small as um, uh, overdosing on drugs and, and then getting brought back to to life. And then because they found the paraphernalia when they resuscitated them, they uh, struck him out on a, on a felony for uh, paraphernalia. So I, I realized that, you know, I'd, I'd rolled the dice long enough in my life and, and that this was not the kind of life I wanted. I didn't want to be spending the rest of my life in prison. So I needed to come up with something quick. Um, so I, I thought welding was a pretty cool trade. You know, it, it's a you know, pretty, you know, badass trade, you know, as you will for somebody coming from the streets. Um, and it pays a lot of money. And the good thing about being a welder and being in the union, because I'm a union welder, was the fact that the unions do not discriminate on, on an individual's past, you know, uh, uh, troubled history. So 
I was able to get into the union and go through the apprenticeship program and, and, you know, I was making some pretty good money until that, that recession, um, messed me up. And then I made the, the, the poor decision to resort back to that, um, old way of making money. And that was my mistake. I, I want to come back to the welding to talk about the, the, uh, the program you helped to start. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about your, your time in prison during this latest stint in an event that happened in, uh, I think June of 2017, where yeah. actually maybe just just take me through this. The, the event I'm, I'm curious about is with these uh, flashbang grenades, and you, I think you were you were injured from them, right? Yeah. So, um, so when I uh, got sentenced, I was eventually uh, transferred to um, it's called the United States Penitentiary at Lompoc, which is a high security facility. However, um, even though it's still named that, it's, it's now considered a medium security facility, but it still ran as a penitentiary. Um, so there I started that welding program and a bunch of other programs that I, was, uh, I started from scratch and um, was doing a lot of good things there. Eventually, I got transferred to the low facility five years later to go take the residential drug abuse program at the end of my sentence. So I'm um, getting ready to go home. At, I'm at the end of my drug program. And on June 21st, 2017, there was uh, a small, I guess you could say, a uh, small-scale fight or a small-scale riot that occurred outside of the building I was um, housed in uh, between, you know, um, brown, uh, Hispanics and, and, and Black individuals. I don't know the, the specific details of how it all started or whatever, but they were fighting outside for about maybe 10 minutes. Uh, the um, correctional officers at Lompoc responded and were quickly able to get the situation under control. Um, approximately 45 minutes after the last of the, of the 10 minutes or 15 minutes of fighting, the officers then came to the drug abuse program building, K-Dorm, and um, opened the door and gave instructions for everyone in the building to get to their bunks, uh, assigned bunk areas, and get on the ground. Everybody complied. As soon as we started getting down, several flashbang grenade-type uh, um, devices came flying through the door. I, I estimated to be six grenades. Um, two of them landed immediately next to me which caused severe injuries to my left leg and, and my left arm and part of my side. Um, these blasts were so powerful that it completely shredded the sweatpants off of my legs, burning the skin, uh, tearing uh, pieces of uh, deep gashes into my leg. Um, they came in, they handcuffed everybody, and then I was taken to the secure housing unit placed under what they called um, investigation, and uh, 71, day, uh, 71 days later, I was released and cleared of any wrongdoing. And um, just to just back up for a minute, so yeah. did you re even receive medical treatment of any kind? Uh, very minimal medical treatment. Uh, they came in, they gauzed me up, basically put some ointment on on my injuries, and then carted me off to the secure housing unit. And was was left in there for 71 days. Well, they took pictures and video that I'm still. I've been fighting 
for these pictures and videos and for all the records that the BOP investigators uh, obtained during the course of their investigation to prove that these uh, officers uh, maliciously and, and vindictively applied this force amongst a peaceful and compliant dormitory and, and, um, in retaliation for what had happened outside. Basically, their mindset coming from some of their comments was, you guys want to act up, we're going to show you guys who's in charge here. So um, the, the captain and the AW, who were the ranking officials that I seen through the door, because my bunk was the first bunk next to the entrance of K-Dorm, they had instructed people, when, when I, as I mentioned, that to, to get to your bunks and get on the ground. When I was in the shoe the next day, them and the warden made rounds, and I asked them, why did they do this? The captain had told me straight out, somebody had flipped them off when he gave instructions to go to their bed. He indicated it was a white Caucasian, and that is why they reacted the way they reacted. I have several declarations and documents from witnesses in the dorm who would testify that immediately after the grenades had went off and they came in the building, they went seeking this individual, stating, where's that freaking cracker at? Found him and then whooped him in front of everybody right there in, in the dormitory and were laughing now. Now, now who's, who's so tough and, and, you know, remarks like that. So these guys were completely out of control that night. And it was just, you know, just to get some get back. And this happened throughout the institution. This didn't only happen in K-Dorm. This happened in other dormitories throughout the institution where these officers just ran rampant, blowing out windows, throwing grenades in every building. And mind you, this is 45 minutes after the fighting in a building that is surrounded by windows so they can clearly see for 45 minutes that nothing was going on inside. The building officer in charge never called for any assistance, so there was no imminent threat. There was no need to, to react in this in this manner. You, you just mentioned that, that people... They, so was there there was an investigation done by, by whom? By the... Well, you know, they, themselves. So, of course, they're not going to find themselves right. guilty of any excessive force and stuff like this. So um, there's uh, on, on the Internet, if you just Google uh, FCI Lompoc riot, uh, June 2017, the press release that the Bureau of Prisons gave to the public completely leaves all this out. It says it was a small fight, quickly got under control. Everybody was sent back to the unit. But they're not saying what really happened and that they took 300 people to the hole. Most of them randomly selected from other buildings that weren't even there. Two weeks later, after June 21st, about two weeks later, they released approximately 200 people from the shoe. Two weeks later. Supposedly, this is after investigating. They released people who were housed in the immediate location of the fighting and cleared them. I had five staff witnesses that night give statements to investigators that I was secured in my building where I was supposed to be, that I was not a participant in any of this situation. 
that I was injured only by the flashbang grenades that were thrown into the dorm. Nevertheless, I was kept in the shoe for 71 days. I was the last individual to return from the shoe back to general population. Despite all of this, despite being known in the facility as, you know, somebody positive and doing all this stuff and all, creating all these programs and, and, you know, I had, there was no question about, you know, the, the reputation I had established there for almost, let me see, about six years. Do you think it had anything to do with how badly you were wounded and they didn't want people to see that? Exactly. That was my thought while I was sitting in the shoe every week. Well, actually, as soon as they took me to medical that night, uh, I was being seen by uh, when they were t- uh, bandaging me up. That's when the uh, special investigative services uh, investigators came, seen me, and started taking pictures and video of my injuries. And I explained to them, as I just mentioned to you, that I was where I was and and exactly how it happened. The warden happened to be walking through right when this was being done. And he knew me because of everything, like I said, that I was doing there. And I told him and he said he'd look into it and not to worry. So I'm thinking, all right, cool. You know, they're going to, they're going to, you know, they're going to take care of it, you know, and I'll be released and, you know, everything to be good. For 71 days, every week, the warden used to walk through the, um, through the secure housing unit on Wednesday. Every week, I would ask him, what's up? Why am I still here? Why isn't anything being done? And every week, he would tell me, just be patient. He told me not to worry, that they're going to take care of it. Well, I was left in there to the very end. When I returned back to the general population, uh, as I mentioned, I was in a drug program. I was at the tail end of it. It was a nine-month drug abuse program. I was six months into it. By the time I got back out, my my group was transitioning. They were they were finishing the program, which meant I would have been going home a couple months later. Because I was gone so long, they said I had to restart at the next group, which had just started. So I had to start the drug program all over again because I was gone in the shoe for something I had nothing to do with injured, which cost me six months out of the 12 months of the halfway house that the warden was going to give me based on all the accomplishments that I had already, you know, done throughout the six years that I was at SCI or USP and SCI Lompoc. Yeah, this, so, this event didn't happen. This was June 21st, 2017. This is only like 16 months ago when this happened. Yeah. So I, and how long did it take to, you to, to fully heal from everything? Uh... I would say it took a good, a good four months, a good four months just, you know, just for like the star, the scars to just like be just for the scars to be healing. I still have scars on my leg and stuff to, to date, but I'm saying I was bleeding in the shoe for about a month. They would walk every, every week and I, my sheets would be full of blood. I'd be telling them I need to see medical. It's still bleeding and they wouldn't even come most of the time to give me fresh bandages or, or anything. The cannabis industry has rapidly expanded. For those Liberty lovers who want to take advantage of this growing industry, they've been met with a flood of government taxes and regulation. A lot of cannabis companies would just love to hire a full-time CFO, but that could be super, super expensive. But what if you could have the knowledge 
and experience of this full-time CFO at a fraction of the cost. If you're in the cannabis business or you plan on entering the fray, then you need to schedule a free consultation with the Grow CFO Rachel Kennerly. The Grow CFO will help to maximize cost of goods sold deductions by employing accrual and cost accounting, creating tax savings, and improving cash flow. They will keep your books in an audit-ready state. If you or someone you know is either already in the cannabis industry or thinking about jumping in the fray, go to thegrowcfo.com and schedule a free consultation today. I think, I think it's important um, to talk about, you know, you mentioned before that you had a you had a good record while you were in there and you were helping to, uh, you, you, I guess you had started this program at that point for welders. So can you talk a little bit about how that came to fruition and, and what exactly that welding program was? Okay, so when I first got to USP Lompoc, which is the medium facility, um, shortly after I was um, in education department because I was in the process of, of challenging, uh, I was appealing my, my, uh, my sentence because I didn't believe it was a reasonable sentence. And there was a bunch of stuff my attorney didn't do, which could have affected the outcome at the end. So I was in education a lot, and I was asked by education department staff one day, like orientation uh, uh, meeting or whatever, interview, and they asked me what programs I was interested in. Well, I was there just for only a couple months, but long enough to kind of check things out and see what was available at the prison. So knowing what they had already, I told them, just going along with it, well, what do you have that I could take? that I can get become certified in, in a trade or something and be able to return back to the community and make a good living. I already knew they didn't have no accredited programs whatsoever at this prison. So they, they, they said a couple classes and stuff, and I asked them if it was accredited and stuff. Of course, they said it was. So you just get a BOP certificate at the end, and, and that was it. So I told them I wasn't interested in taking any of their programs. They got a little bit snotty with me and they said, well, what would you like? So I mentioned to them, this is what I do. I'm a, I'm a union structural welder. I'm certified in this, 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 and this. I'm a certified commercial diver, so I do underwater uh, construction as well. I went to school for welding inspection. I was in school for that at the time of my arrest. So I have a, a, a big background in welding. So they said, maybe you should talk to our our boss, the supervisor of education, and tell him, you know, about you and, and, and what you would like. So one day I just approached him and, and shared with him everything, showed him my union wages, showed him all my certifications and all the schools I'd been to, and, and told him, you know, without, you know, just there's no disrespect to your program here, but I think you guys could be doing better if you start focusing more on trades because the average guy in, in prison is the average street level guy. Most of them don't even have a GED or barely got a GED. Um, they're not always, you know, uh, book smart. Of course, you have a lot of intelligent people in prison. Don't get me wrong, but I'm saying the average guy coming from the street, he, he might not have a formal education. So most of these guys are real hands-on types of guys. I mean, you could show somebody something in five minutes. They're, 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 they're hands-on street smart. So welding uh, or the trades basically would be a good way to go because two, 
like I mentioned a, a little while ago, the unions don't discriminate against, against uh, past criminal histories. So they won't never ask you if anyone has a felony record. They're just going to ask you, can you work? Can you show up on time? And can you get the job done? And they got the apprenticeship program to give you the free training once once you're um, you're um, into the union. So I shared all this with him, and I showed him the wages. I said, look, a, a guy barely getting into the union today, zero experience. And back then, it was like $16 an hour. I think right now it's like 18 and some change with zero experience to start. And they're going to teach you that trade, you know, through a, through an apprenticeship program and, and you get paid, you know, while you're working and all that stuff. So this would be a better way to, 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 um, fulfill the needs of, of the guys, you know, the average guy here on, on this yard. So he asked if I could put something together and I said, sure. So I wrote up a proposal. I wrote up a couple because they wanted a couple of things tweaked here and there. They asked me if I could write a budget up and a plan of operation and eventually curriculums and all that. And so it got sent from the supervisor of education to the warden, to the regional director, and eventually to the um, director of the Bureau of Prisons in Washington, D.C. The funds and everything I put together got approved. Uh, later, the money came. Me and a, and a hand-selected a, a crew, we... Uh, built a shop ourselves. I mean, this is a nice shop. And um, I started teaching and I was teaching it for a couple of years. And I got a lot of guys certified. I was in partnerships with not only my union, but a couple other um, trade unions here in Southern California that supported the program. So I, I got it. So that I had another event that I started called the building trades event, which allowed these representatives from the trades to come into the institution to talk and speak with the students in the programs to offer, you know, um, you know, resources and stuff. So when they came home, they, they know they can call this representative in the union and get them in the apprenticeship program in several trades. I had the carpenters union, iron workers, um, pipe fitters and, and steam fitters union, plumbers, um, operator engineers. So, all these trades utilize welding and welders. So, you know, it was, it was a great opportunity to, to even expand the program, you know, even more. So that's what we did. And, and it's a very, it's the most successful program to date. And the only one that I believe still at the institution that's accredited nationally. So a guy could take this program in Lompoc, go to New York and be recognized as a certified American welding society um, welder. That's, that's awesome. And, you know, it is it is in such high demand right now. In my day job, I work in oil and natural gas, and there is a tremendous shortage of, of welders right now. Um, you know, welders are at the point that you can almost name your price just because the demand is so high. It's crazy. But, uh, They're yeah, short. All the, all the baby boomers are, are retired, and, and it's phasing out, and there's just not enough welders out there because it, it went for so many years that, you know, uh, the kids were, we don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want to get dirty. We don't want to be out there, but you know, it's a good trade where you can make good money without having to spend four years, six years in college. Absolutely. Hey, I, I want to ask you about, so wh- while you were in the halfway house, this is just a couple months ago, I guess 
you were able to come in contact with a guy named Scott Budnick, who I guess he yeah. was one of the filmmakers uh, who helped who made The Hangover, which is a pretty pretty big movie, and he is involved with the Anti Recidivism Coalition. So, can you just talk a little bit about a little bit about that meeting and what what your goal was with with meeting up with him and what came from it? Well, um, uh, I. I I spent some time after uh, creating this program, looking into other programs that exist here in Southern California to see what people are doing, uh, what, 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 um, you know, where the help is and where there isn't help. And I came across uh, Scott Butnick's um, organization and started reading about it and, and, and all the great things that he and his team are doing out there in, in downtown LA. And of course they don't discriminate just to downtown LA, anybody who can get to them. They're, they're willing to help. So I shared the story with uh, Scott and, um, and I, I, I know some of the people that he works with or is in communication with. So uh, they kind of just mentioned that, you know, we're all, it's a little same circle, you know, reform activists and, and just, you know, reentry program stuff. So he, uh, he wanted to meet me. So he said, come on down and we scheduled an appointment. Went down there and shared uh, with him, you know, the, the story that was published by Families Against Mandatory Minimum um, and the story also that it was done uh, by uh, Walt Palvo from Forbes magazine. So he wanted to meet me and I told him that uh, I, I want to do something like that. I want to start another program out here with welding and try to catch, you know, the at-risk youth guys and ex-offenders coming home that didn't get a chance in there because there's a lot of places that don't have opportunities like this and try to give them some hope and some, you know, some, uh, something they can uh, make an honest living, you know, so they can support their families and just share my story and try to try to help them from going down the path I went down for so many years. So, uh, I shared that with him and he was real interested in it and, uh, wants me to be, uh, a part of the anti-recidivism coalition uh, family. I'm enrolled with them right now. So as soon as I get out of this halfway house, uh, I've been talking with with not only the people from ARC, but um, some other organizations like United Ways, American Wellness Society. Um, man, there's just so many people. Miller uh, manufacturers, um, they're one of the biggest welding equipment um, manufacturers in the United States. So I shared them uh, with them my ideas and everybody's on board. They want to help. They want to donate. They want to do whatever it is that their organizations can do to help make this happen out here so we can help these people. So as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to be, be making some moves with these guys. I also just was uh, on a telephone conference with about five people from the Charles Koch Institute about maybe a week and a half ago, okay, two Wednesdays yeah. ago. So um, they also read the stories. They were um, the uh, president of FAM shared the stories with uh, the people from the Charles Koch Institute, and we set up a conference call with about maybe five or six of them, and they're interested in my story and interested in my plans, and they've thrown it out to that they would like to see if I would be interested in helping them create similar programs, even in other states. So we have another call coming up next month in November. So we're just going to see what happens from there. Once I get out of this house. 
Well, you got a lot of stuff going on. So I got a feeling that in a couple of months, I'm going to probably want to have you back on the show to get an update because that's uh, that's some exciting stuff. But, you know, this I think there's you're just giving such a great example of and there's been sort of a theme the past past few guests I've had maybe in the last 10, 15 episodes or, or so. There's been some really great stories like yours, people who have been through the prison system have experienced, you know, what went right, what went wrong, and are just actively involved applying that to change it, to make it better. And I think that's the only way you fix it. I mean, the only people who could fix the system are people like you who know exactly what needs done, you know, the skills people need, um, you understand how, how they need trained. So I, I give you a uh, give you huge props for that. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, that's exactly what I, you know, I want to want to do because when I was a kid and, you know, in elementary school or whatever, junior high, and they had like their intervention, people try to come talk to us. These are guys in suits. These were bureaucrats. These were, you know, people in law enforcement. Of course, we didn't relate to them. We didn't respect them because, you know, we just seen so many injustices with, you know, the police, police brutality, so we didn't trust these people and we didn't want to hear it because you're on that side and we're on this side. You don't care about us. So I, I have no reason to trust you or relate to you. And, but with my, with my background, people know me, people can trust me. I can relate to the, to the struggles from the streets. And I, I know what it takes to get these people who are willing to help themselves, get them trained and get them in the trades and get them on a new path. So hopefully, um, with all these great people and organizations. Now we've got a lot of celebrities coming out and getting involved with reform, reentry, and all this stuff. You know, hopefully we can keep gaining momentum and, and make this happen because this is going to have the potential to change a lot of lives. Not Absolutely. only mine, but a lot, a lot of other people. Yeah, I, I think this country is very close to having some major positive changes around sentencing reform, around you know recidivism ending recidivism or you know making it a lot less common and uh hopefully you know really scaling back the war on drugs looks like we we could be getting close to getting some more decriminalization or legalization of marijuana on a national level which would just change the whole game so uh, there's some pretty exciting things that uh i think could could help a, a lot of people coming down the pike in the next year or two I hope so, because something's got to change. It's the way it's, it's been going for these 40-some years, uh, this war on drugs, it's it's not working. There's no empirical data based on these sentencing laws and stuff like that. It's, it's you know, there's no, in most of these places, they're just warehousing. They're not rehabilitating. So, you know, hopefully they do make some serious changes soon. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it has to happen. It has to happen. But, uh, Michael, I want to thank you just so much for coming on and, and sharing your story with the Felony Friday audience. The work you're doing is incredible. Um, you know, the stuff you've been through just what was it, 16 months ago, you had that, that terrible thing happen to you in prison, and you've uh, you bounced back from that, haven't missed a beat. So, yeah, I can't let it get, get me down. i got to stay focused and keep pushing forward. That's, that's great advice, man. And, uh, yeah, just thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, can I leave my uh, social media if anybody wants to yeah. get in touch or follow? Absolutely. Follow yeah, pl- plug story. away. Sorry about that. Yeah, but give your social media okay. or any other any other, anything else you want to plug. Yeah. 
uh, just anybody can follow me on Facebook at Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, A, Montsevias, last name M-O-N-S-I-V-A-I-S, or on Instagram at Chino underscore Mike 909. And the Forbes story and the fam story are in my bio on the Instagram um, bio. Well, I'll link to all that stuff on the show notes page too. And uh, you guys check that out. And yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Michael, for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode with Michael Montsevice. Um, another great person. You know, I feel like I'm getting repetitive here with these shows at the end when I do my conclusion, my little rap. People come up to me all the time. Well, they don't come up to me, actually. They send me a message on Facebook or an email or something like that. But people approach me all the time and they say, John, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you interview these people and you hear these stories. It's got to be so difficult to have to listen to these over and over every week, over and over again. You hear these terrible stories of people being wronged by the criminal justice system. And you know what? I mean, it's not terrible. It's fantastic. I love it. And I, I was just telling somebody this week in our uh, Lions Pride, our private Facebook group, who messaged me about this. And, you know, they said they can't listen to every episode because it's too hard. It's too much to listen to it all the way through. And I think people are missing the point. People are missing the point of this show. The reason that I interview these individuals, the, interview, the reason that I brought uh, someone like Michael on this show, who has a fantastic story, who has overcome so much, who's given back so much, who is working right now, right now, while he's still in a freaking halfway house, he's working to change the system that screwed him, change the system that injured him, change the system that burned the side of his body up and down and threw him in a little tiny cell until he healed, just hit him away from from uh, the rest of the prison population. The reason, the reason why I bring these people on, the reason why I'm so freaking passionate about this stuff is because this not only will this help to change the system but this is freaking motivation right here and this isn't just motivation for people who've been in the criminal justice system and have experienced it this is motivation for everybody because you know what as you're going through your life as you go to your nine to five job you go to your shitty job you're living your, your your shitty life maybe it's a great life maybe it's not shitty but a lot of people are living shitty lives out there they wake up every day and they're not excited they feel bad for themselves. They feel sorry for themselves. Maybe they're having trouble at work, trouble with their family, trouble with a friend, whatever it is. You look at stories like this. You look at the story last week with Judy Henderson, which she went through, 36 years in prison, convicted of murder, of a murder she did not commit. You look at that, you look at the attitude of Judy coming out on the other side, of Michael coming out on the other side. How can that not motivate you? How can that not make you jump out of bed in the morning and be thankful to have your goddamn freedom. Sorry, I'm a little, little bit excited today. Um, you know, I just think people, because I do hear this criticism. This criticism of that's not a criticism of the show. It's people saying, "Man, you know, I, I don't know if I can listen to it. It's just so sad." Well, you know what? Maybe you need to listen to it because maybe you need some motivation in your life. And I'm sorry if I'm the one to uh, to bring that to bring that to you. I'm not singling anyone out in, individually. It might have sounded like that during the one part when I was bringing up the person brought up in the forum to, in our Lions of Liberty Pride Facebook group. I, I'm not. I hear this all the time. I hear this from the other co-hosts of this show bring it up to me. I hear it from everyone. So I'm not singling anybody out. 
it's just something that's been on my mind and and I had to get it out because I think it's uh I think this show is impactful in so many ways. Not only can we change the criminal justice system, and I'm helping in a very small way to elevate these stories, but these stories can help people outside of the system to live better, more influential lives, more impactful lives, more passionate lives. So that's why I do this show. That's why I'm passionate about criminal justice reform. And that's why I'm passionate about giving individuals who have overcome so much this platform. So stepping down off my soapbox, thank you so much for listening to today's show. Um, I'm just going to say, please, uh, if if you want to support this show, support what we're doing here, go to uh, patreon.com slash lines of liberty and uh, check that out. Think about joining at five or 10 or $15 a month. Look at the you know different stuff you get for each level. You get bonus content starting at that $5 level. So check that out. And thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for everyone who supported this show along the way. And uh, that's it, guys. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.